If you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, we're going to start a series today for the month of December. The Gospel writers, in introducing Jesus, took different angles. They help us to know Jesus from different sides, different perspectives about who he is, his character. We're probably most familiar with Luke's account because he goes into such detail. And it was Charlie Brown's friend Linus who quoted Luke, if you remember. So maybe we think of that from so many angles. Luke chapter 2 tells us about the manger. Begins with the birth of Christ. It's sort of like this is the the beginning of of Christ. And that's how uh, Luke starts his story about Jesus. But John comes at it from a different angle. John teaches, presents, opens up the gospel, emphasizing the deity of Christ. He wants us to understand from the very beginning that this baby in a manger is God. This is God in the flesh. And it's a big deal. And so while Luke focuses on Jesus at the moment he comes into the world, John introduces Jesus by going back to creation. Helping us to understand it. It didn't just start on that day of birth. So there in John chapter 1, this is going to be on the screen as well if you want to follow along. John 1, just the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We're going to talk more about what this means, this referring to Jesus as the Word. Through Him, verse 3, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So John opens his gospel just helping us to understand the Word has always been. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was there at creation. Everything was created through Him. And that word, if you said this before, is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It means the expression or declaration of a thought. So what John is saying here by calling Jesus Word in these opening verses is that Jesus is an expression of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He's Logos. And John wants us to understand as we just open the Gospel and you begin reading here and think about Jesus being born. He's not just a representation of God. Jesus is God. And that's a big deal. There's a big difference. He's God in human form. The Logos was Theos. This is God with skin on. It had never happened before. That's why this birth was so amazing. And so at this time of year, when so many are contemplating the the birth of Jesus Christ, it's all around us. We see the nativity. We see Jesus in the manger. We tend to focus on the very... uh, perspective that Jesus is a baby, that Jesus is a human. But John makes it clear that this baby in a manger is God. One of my favorite uh, names for God in the Old Testament is El Elyon. If you've been with us for a while, you remember we studied the names of God a couple of Sunday nights in, in a series. El Elyon just means the God Most High. And that's how it's rendered in most of our uh, English versions. God Most High, or Lord Most High. And that's how you'll read it in the Old Testament. And the word El, when used in God's name, usually means powerful and mighty. And so when you've got El, El, Yon, that means highest. 
So the God who is highest, the God who is mightiest, the God who is most powerful, that's what it means. This God who is independent. This God who is supreme. This God who is the ruler of the universe. He governs with power and authority over our world, over history. That's who He is. And nothing will thwart His plans. This is God most high. There's no one higher. There's no one better. There's no one bigger. There's no one stronger. There's no one like God. One author says, He's the strongest of the strong. He's the greatest of the great. He's the wisest of the wise. He's the mightiest of the mighty. He is first and last, the beginning and the end. That's who He is. And He came in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. There's no one like Him. Look at this next slide. You ever felt that way? You ever experienced information overload and you just feel like you have just been inundated, even slapped in the face with everything coming your way? Daniel Levitin of McGill University professor and author of The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. Listen to what he says. In 1976, there were 9,000 products in the average grocery store. 9,000 products when you went to get groceries. Now it's ballooned to 40,000 products. And yet most of us can get all of our shopping done in just 150 items. So you're having to ignore tens of thousands of things every time you go shopping. He goes on by one calculation. He says, we've created more information in the last 10 years than all of human history combined. All of this is more than the brain can handle. The conscious mind can pay attention to two, three, maybe four things at once. We've all been there. You know, you're watching the weather and, and, and you're listening to it. You just want to catch the weather and the weather comes and goes. What do you say? You know, you, you, just, you just tune it out. Or maybe you, you think, I'm, I'm going to look that up on the internet. And so you go to the internet and by the time you click on and you clear things off and then you get to the point where you're, start, what, what did I come here to look up? Does that ever happen to you? Sam Anderson wrote an article for New York Magazine. It was called The Poverty of Attention. Let me just read a few lines. In fact, look at this next slide. This was the illustration that went with it. I'm going to read his words. I'm going to pause right here, right at the beginning of my riveting article about attention, and ask that you all please get all of your precious 21st century distractions out of your system now. Check the score of the game, refresh your work email, your home email, your school email, and alert the fellow citizens of whatever Twitter-topia you happen to frequent that you will be suspending your digital presence for the next 20 minutes or so. I know that seems drastic. Tell them you're having an appendectomy or something, and you're about to lose consciousness. Good. Now, count your breaths. Close your eyes. Do whatever it takes to get all of the neurons lined up in one direction. Above all, resist the urge to fixate on that picture of that weird scrambled guy typing. Do not speculate on his ethnicity, German, Venezuelan, or his backstory, witness protection program, or the size of his monitor. Go ahead and look away if you need to. There, doesn't that feel better? Now it's just you and me, tucked like 14th century Zen masters into the sweet little nook of pure mental focus. Seriously, stop looking at him. I'm over here. He said this back in 1971. 1971. Now, some of you think that was eons ago. Others of us remember that. 1971, when the web was still 20 years off, 
The smallest computers were the size of delivery vans. Before the founders of Google had even managed to get themselves born, the polemoth economist Herbert A. Simon wrote maybe the most concise possible description of our modern struggle. I put it on the screen. I want you to see these words. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. A poverty of attention. According to him, and I put this on your study guide, I want you to write that in, we are suffering from a serious poverty of attention. I think Daryl kind of helped us to understand that even in taking communion, we need sometimes an exercise or a reminder or something. God knows this is the way we are. We have trouble paying attention. It's a challenge to stay focused. It's not because we don't want to. We want to. It matters to us. It's meaningful. But we have a hard time just staying on task. We have a hard time paying attention and focusing on the God Most High. That is the truth. So I want us to acknowledge that. Here's what we find when we study about the Lord Most High. When you study the name El Elyon, I want to give you a couple of scriptures to paint the picture. David used this to describe God in 2 Samuel twenty-two fourteen. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He is Lord Most High. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace and they were not consumed? You remember that story? And he was so amazed by that. Daniel 3, 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. There's that name. Here's someone who doesn't believe, who is acknowledging God is Most High. Come out, come here. Isaiah uses different images to help us understand God Most High, the greatness of God. One example doesn't use that name, God Most High, but it uses some metaphorical language to understand how great He is. Isaiah 40, verse 12, he asked the question, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of His hand? How much water could you hold in the hollow of your hand? Maybe a couple of teaspoons, tablespoon, maybe? Who measures the waters? To God, it's like, eh, that's the Pacific Ocean. There it goes. Well, there's the Indian Ocean. Boop. There it goes. And he goes on saying, uh, who has the breath of his hand marked off in the heavens? The breath of your hand, that's not from the end of your pinky to your thumb. For me, it's about nine inches. Think of how small that is. And we know the closest star to us other than the sun is over four Light years away, 26 trillion miles, give or take a few trillion, depending on how you measure. And God says, eh, let me measure that for you. That's how big God is. That's how great God is. We need to understand how big He is. So how do you respond then to this God Most High? We understand this is His name. We understand this is who He is. And the question is, how do you respond to that? Well, David answers that. In fact, when you study the name El Elyon about God Most High, you find it more often used in the book of Psalms. 
And it's used usually in a connection with worship. It's an acknowledgement of who He is, how great He is. A couple of examples. Psalm 7, verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord because of His righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. There it is. Psalm 9-2, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so when you see the greatness, the majesty of God, then our response to that is heartfelt worship. Not just singing songs, not just going through the motion. It's not rote. It's from here. When you acknowledge who He is, you can't help but respond with heartfelt worship. So that's our challenge. We're going to give you two challenges. If you look in your study guide, there's two. The first one is this. We respond to the Lord most high with heartfelt worship. Because we're filled with joy. Because He is sovereign. We acknowledge His power. We acknowledge His ability. We acknowledge that He's sovereign. And so when this life feels so out of control... We don't lose it because everybody else is losing it. We respond to God with heartfelt worship. We fix our eyes on Him. But now contrast that the whole thinking with what happened when Jesus was born. Because when Jesus was born, there didn't seem to be much recognition of this is God Most High. In fact, He wasn't recognized much at all. His birth was all but unnoticed. People were busy. People were distracted. People were apathetic. People were ignorant. They just didn't know. They just didn't know that on that day, God Most High came in the flesh. But there's one group who did. One segment. The angels. They knew. Luke 2, verse 13 and 14. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. This is God Most High. This is Jesus, Lord Most High. And don't miss how incredible this is. That God Most High came to earth. And even more incredible is how He did it. He didn't come as a prince. He didn't come as a king. He wasn't born in a palace. He's not wrapped in fine linens. He's wrapped in rags. He didn't spend his first night in clean sheets that were monogrammed from his grandparents. Not at all. Spends his first night in a feeding trough. He goes from highest to lowest. That's really what makes the birth of Jesus so incredible. The Lord Most High makes Himself Nothing. When you think about what you know about where Jesus was born and and think about Joseph and Mary because what the perspective of all of that because just a few miles down the road if you contrast in this animal stable feeding trough birthing suite just down the road a couple of miles was King Herod's palace set on a hill you couldn't miss it Multiple acres, huge, huge estate, 90 feet tall, surrounded by these palace grounds, swimming pools, exotic gardens. All that just down the road. That's where King Herod lived. But on the other end, you've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who became flesh. Well, that's the challenge for us. 
because Jesus went from highest to lowest. And in doing that, He declares how much He loved us, how much He's willing to sacrifice. But it's also an invitation to follow. It's a challenge to follow. And if we're to be completely committed followers of Jesus, we're going to take note. Because we're to follow His example. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is not a typical passage we think of when we think of the birth of Christ. But Paul gives us this challenge. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So I want our challenge to be, the next couple of weeks especially, to have the same attitude as Jesus. And Paul then uses his birth as an illustration of this kind of attitude he had when he came. What that meant. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He continues in verse 6, who being in very nature God. His very nature, His essence, His identity. El Elyon, God Most High. That's who He is. But He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He relinquished His rights. Oh, what a lesson we need to learn with that one. He relinquished His rights He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And He gives it up. He made Himself nothing, verse 7. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So you have God Most High who makes Himself nothing. And that's the invitation for us to, to follow. To make ourselves nothing as well. The God who had everything makes Himself nothing. The one who deserved a royal welcome was content with just a humble hello. The one who deserved everyone to bow at his feet was born to wash the feet of those around him. That's what's happening. And that's the challenge. So challenge number two, live out the good news through humble service. And Paul mentions what that is, how he explains that in Philippians chapter 2. He fleshes it out a bit. Here's what it looks like. And what he does here, he takes that challenge from generic to specific. And that's when it becomes uncomfortable. And that's when we begin to squirm a little bit. Look what he says there in verse 3. Have the same attitude of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Is that possible? Really? Is, is that possible because the older I get and if I'm honest with myself almost everything I do is out of selfish ambition even the unselfish things that I do is out of selfish ambition I'm hoping that maybe somebody will notice or maybe there'll be a blessing for me on the other end it comes back to my selfishness maybe you're not that different Paul says don't do that don't live that way the whole world lives that way be like Jesus, he's saying. Here's the path we choose. Look at verse 3. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Consider others better than ourselves. I know, and what I'm sharing this morning, this is nothing new. You've heard this before. But I want us to read this with fresh eyes and think, okay, what does that mean? And how do I live that out? We're going to talk about that tonight in our groups. See, we can consider someone who's important better than ourselves. That's easily done. They've got the position, they've got the money, they've got the whatever it is that puts them up there in our book. It's easy for us to think of them 
as better than yourselves. But that's not what he says here. Everybody, everybody, even the ones you don't think are important, they're valued by God. He loves them too. He died for them too. You treat them as if they're better than you. Look in verse 4. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Question. Does that describe your family around the holidays? Is that the way you are? Everybody's like, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, no, you go first. No, you go first. Is that the way it works? Maybe your house is more like mine. Parents, you ever have the time when you're putting the presents under the tree and your kids are old enough, young enough, they can count? They do the math? Sibling has got two more presents than I've got. Something's got to be done about that. Has that ever happened? Or they come in and they see the presents under the tree and there's that big one. You know, that big one. And it's got somebody else's name on it. Well, surely mom and dad have an even bigger one that would even fit in the room. And they're just going to wait and reveal that to me at the right time. And they'll make it right. That's children. But now adults, we grow out of that, don't we? We mature and we excel at being selfless and putting others better than ourselves. Or maybe we just learned to hide it a little bit more. Honest question. I want an honest answer for this. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever told your spouse, you don't need to get me anything this year? I want to see. Bunch of liars. <laughs> we say that, but do we really mean it? In the bulletin next week, we're going to put responses. The whole church confessed. We say that, but then we think, well, surely they know that's a figure of speech, right? Maybe they'll kind of find something on sale at just the right time. Let me help you out with this. If you're just getting married and it's your first Christmas, you say, you know, we just got all these wedding presents. We don't really need anything. You don't have to get me anything this year. Don't do that. Because what will happen is you won't get them anything, and then you're going to hear about that for the rest of your married life. Remember that first Christmas when you didn't get me anything? Or you fast forward a couple of years, you know, you got 2.5, 3.5 kids, you know, you're just trying to make it for them. You say, you know, let's just do it for the children, you know. We don't have to get anything. Don't believe that one either. Because what that means is, I'm not going to get you anything. But may God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you don't have something for me under that tree. <laughs> Isn't that what it means? I'm telling you. We need to be real. Even when we mean it. You've been there. Everybody's holding presents. You think, I sure wish somebody just kind of forgot that I said that. You know, open just one. Seriously, Paul said, consider others better than yourself. You know when that works best? That works best when everybody cooperates. Isn't that true? If everybody has that mindset, everybody's treating each other as better than themselves, that is, that is utopia. That is amazing. But that's not what he says here. He didn't say wait until everybody's in on it before you get on it. 
In fact, he says, you just follow Jesus. You consider others better than yourself. What happens if we do that in our families, to your spouse, with your children? If we treat other people better than me, they treat me better than them. But Jesus did that, right? That's the way he lived. That's who he was. He put others ahead of himself. Not because we earned it. Not because they deserved it. Not because it was... It was just Jesus. It's just the way he was. Sometimes we think, well, I'll look out for me. Because if I don't, who's going to do that? If I don't get a piece of pie, then I'm going to end up with nothing on my plate. If I don't crawl the front seat, my sister's going to grab it. If I don't fight for the remote control, I'm going to end up watching Dancing with the Stars all night. If I don't look out for my own needs, who's going to do that? Here's the cool thing. I want this to be a challenge for us. Just, just take that verse and just apply it. Just really make application. Look at verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. We have that opportunity. You have that opportunity everywhere. It's in your home. It's at work. It's with your neighbors. It's with your church. It's everywhere. All of us have this opportunity. And the question is, how are you going to live out the good news? Because folks, we live in a world that is desperate for good news. And God can use you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you bring them to church and they hear the good news, although that's a great thing too. Maybe it's something you do in your own house, in your own neighborhood. I read a story about Jack and Patsy Raleigh. Very quickly, let me share this. They own a business. They live in a neighborhood that, quite frankly, is a little bit rough. But they stayed there because they wanted to be near their parents. They could have moved to maybe a more secure neighborhood, a better place to live, if you will. Use that word. But they heard a sermon about loving people around you. About showing the love of Christ where you are. They wanted to put it into practice. They thought, instead of complaining about my neighborhood going down, I'm going to reach out to my neighborhood. And they said, I have a block party. And so they sent out invitations, went door to door, and they reached out to some of the single moms and the senior citizens that lived in their community. And so they had this old-fashioned block party. They, they popped popcorn and hot dogs and lemonade. And a huge crowd showed up. What they didn't think about, though, is right across their house was this housing project, these uh, low-rent apartments and people came out in the balconies and they were looking. They didn't get invited. They didn't meet that little list. And they were thinking, well, where's the party? And, and so they were convicted then to have a party for them. And so on December 15th, they had a party for them. And they invited everybody in that low-income apartment place. They popped popcorn. Put up a nativity scene. They purchased Walmart gift cards. They set up games for the kids. Had 100 people to come. All kinds of people. Some were college students who needed to live close to the bus line. Others were families that had lost their homes. Some were older people that had lived there for years. They made lasagna for everybody. She had little take-home containers. They had a great time. There wasn't a sermon. But there was a great message. And everyone who was there 
saw what the good news of Jesus looks like. Paul says that this is how Jesus lived. This is who he was. Sometimes he opened his mouth and he talked about the kingdom and sometimes he just got his hands busy and he did things. And he served others. But it was all about the good news. I want us to see this, that Jesus, the whole time, had this in focus. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Just think about that. When his hands were nailed to the cross, he's concerned about his mom. When his hand is nailed to the cross, he's concerned and praying for forgiveness of the people who put him there. While his hands are nailed to the cross, he's reaching out to the thief that's next to him. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God Most High left it all for you and me to give us the hope of His salvation so we could have eternal life so that we could in turn follow Him. And what does that look like? When you, when you realize this is God, that's who He is, and He came for me, this is not rote. You don't have to twist my arm. I want to be there. I want to tell. I want to do. And that's the whole thing. You live out the good news through humble service. People don't have to ask. They'll see it. Let's pray. Lord, would you just impress upon us the significance even of this prayer that we're talking to you, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God Most High. There is no one like you. And God, would you help us to recognize your power and your greatness? And would you help us to just focus our attention on you and to respond with heartfelt worship? And God, I pray then as we would look to the manger and see what you did because you loved us. You left that throne room in heaven and came to this messed up, sin-sick world. Help us to realize it's not for a holiday. It's not for traditions. It's not for a reason to get presents, to be consumed with materialism. But so that Jesus could save the world and give us an example to follow. God, we're your messengers. Help us to accept that challenge. God, would you give us the opportunity to put that into practice? Or better yet, just open our eyes to the opportunities that are already there this week, this month, even today. God, would you convict us and show us where we have the opportunity to have the same attitude that you demonstrated when you made yourself nothing. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, if we can pray for you specifically, or if you're ready to have your sins washed away in baptism, we always have the water ready. Won't you come as we stand?